0: Our scripture text for this week is from the book of Acts, from chapter 9, verses 19b through 31. Hear now the word of God. For some days, Paul was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, "'He is the Son of God.' And all who heard him were amazed and said, "'Is this not the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon this name?' And has he not come here for the purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. When many days had passed, the Jews plotted to kill him, but their plot became known to Saul. They were watching the gates day and night in order to kill him, but his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a basket." And when the brothers learned this, they brought him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. This is God's word. You may be seated.
1: Well, I'm glad so many people could make it here this morning amidst this cold winter blast that we're experiencing. And a number of people have, enough have commented, yes, it is darker on stage. Apparently, we have a major light malfunction that will probably require a whole new board. That side's lighter, this side's darker, and hopefully in the next few weeks with professional consultants, we will get that fixed. All right, we are in Acts chapter 9. Last week, we looked at the, I think it's safe to say, the most historically significant conversion that has ever happened. So we have Saul of Tarsus, he hates Christianity, hates Christians. He hates the message of Jesus. He's doing whatever he can uh, in Jerusalem to prevent this this message from spreading like a cancer. He's dragging men and women out of their homes. He's in, putting them in jail. He's killing some. And then he gets word that this message is being proclaimed also down the road in Damascus, which is bad because in Damascus there's some some important and influential large synagogues in which this message of Jesus is beginning to be preached. So, he sets out on a mission to eradicate the world of this message of Jesus. And as he is on the road to Damascus in an effort to capture these Christians, he himself is captured by Christ. So we saw that last week. And last week we looked at Saul's conversion as miraculous and uh, in all of its miraculous and amazing features, But we looked at it to see what's actually true of every conversion that has ever taken place in the history of the church. Because what we're seeing in in Saul is his conversion is very much what we see in every conversion that any of us will ever experience. So I want to do something very similar now in this passage. We get to see Saul's assimilation into Christianity, which is pretty crazy. You know, we have this Hebrew of Hebrews, he's ravaging the church, he's... Uh, converted on the road to Damascus, and then we get to see his, his first few days and years uh, as a Christian. And so what I want to do is I want to do a very similar thing. I want to look at his assimilation to Christianity and see what should be true of all of us. Because <laughs> what's happening in Saul's life and his assimilation into cr- Christianity should be the same things that are happening in any of us who profess faith in Jesus Christ. So uh, we also have our missional survey later, which you hear about, which means I need to dive in. There are four things about Saul's conversion into Christianity that are normative. So you, you have prescriptive and descriptive. This is a big conversation in the book of Acts. Some things are just descriptive. They describe something that happens, and we should not think that that applies to every Christian ever. But then you have other things that are prescriptive. There are things that, are, that, are, uh, that we read about that are true of every Christian ever to walk this earth. And I want to see four things that should be true. They're prescriptive of every person who professes faith in Christ and then kind of enters into the same assimilation process that Saul is entering into. And I tried in the first service to stick with Saul and not to slip into Paul, but it's almost impossible I find for myself. But remember, there's no name change going on here. Saul is the name that he uses when he's in Hebrew speaking territory, Paul is the same name, but just the version that you hear when he's in Greek speaking territory, but I'm going to try and call him Saul as best I can because that's where he is right now, and we see right off the bat, the first thing that's true of anyone assimilating into, uh, into Christianity is as a Christian, you will tell other people about Jesus, so Luke uses this word in, in verse 19, immediately. Yeah, I, don't, I, don't, I think he's really want to see immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue. So it wasn't that like Saul, you know, wanted to hang out for a few years or go, you know, go read some good books or go to some good conferences. And then he would start telling people about Jesus. Saul, I mean, Luke's telling us immediately he began to not just tell people about Jesus, but to go into the synagogues and proclaim Jesus. And Luke's very particular in, in letting us know what it was. That Saul is saying in these synagogues, he says he's going into these synagogues and proclaiming that Jesus is the Son of God. That's important because in the Gospels, this term "Son of God" is, is happens very frequently. This is the very first time that it happens in the Book of Acts. Luke is wanting us to know what it is that Saul's saying. He's saying he's preaching Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. And so, I, I'll admit even though I'm making a push to say that immediately he was telling people about Jesus, I will admit he has a leg up on most of us as a brand new Christian. Remember, he was a Hebrew of Hebrews. He knew his Old Testament backwards and forwards. He'd forgotten more Old Testament than I'll probably ever learn. But he knew, because he knew the Old Testament, that Scripture foretold of a Messiah. He knew that that it said there would one day be this anointed one who would be the ultimate fulfillment of all of God's promises, who would redeem all of God's people, and who would be a blessing to the nations. He came into faith knowing that, having that expectation. But like all of the other religious leaders of the day, Saul expected this Messiah to be a political figure who was going to come and he was going to eradicate, uh, overthrow the Roman occupiers, uh, reestablish Israel's rightful place in the world, and reestablish the very throne of David. That's what he would have been expecting, along with all the other Pharisees and Sadducees. So now he's met Jesus and he has to go back and re-understand all this Old Testament that he has been, uh, that that he's, he's learned, and not just see a see it in a different way but see it in a much better way. I think he almost immediately re-understood that everything in the Old Testament ultimately it's not pointing to to someone who was going to overthrow Rome. It was pointing to this Jesus and doing so in a really clear way. He would have understood that Jesus is the better prophet. The Old Testament prophets they come to proclaim judgment on a people who had uh, transgressed the covenant that God had with Israel. Now Jesus, the better prophet, is bringing a new covenant through which we have eternal life. He sees that Jesus is the better priest. You remember a priest in the Old Testament was someone who was a go-between between God and his people. But all these priests were limited because they were sinful. <laughs> because they were sinful, they, they couldn't perfectly empathize with humanity because they, these priests would get jealous. They might get angry. They were short on patience. That's not Jesus. But all the priests were limited, going looking the other way too, because they very timidly approached God, approached His dwelling place in the temple. But Jesus can approach boldly. So I think it's clicking in Saul's mind that Jesus is not only a better prophet, He's a better priest, and He's a better king, because upon His resurrection, He did something that no other kingdom and kingdom would do. Every other king dies. Every other kingdom will fall. But in his resurrection, Jesus is proclaiming that he is a king who will never die and he rules over a kingdom that will never cease. So I think all these things are clicking as Paul goes back through all his scripture and realizes, oh, this is, this is pointed to Jesus. Jesus, he had expected this conquering Messiah. and Now he realizes, probably through Isaiah 53, oh, he would be a suffering servant. And that's exactly who Jesus was. He looks back at the whole sacrificial system and realizes, oh, that's all pointing to Jesus. Jesus is the ultimate once and for all sacrifice by taking on the cross God's wrath in our place that we deserve. He would have looked at the the temple system. You know, we've talked about this. Temple is God's dwelling place with man. Well, Jesus is a better dwelling place between God and man. He's the better temple. He would have understood concepts like the scapegoat in, in the Pentateuch where all of the sins of Israel was cast onto one goat. Well, that creates a really helpful category to understand exactly what's happening on the cross. It's all clicking, I think, for Saul at this point. And this law, the Mosaic law that he had devoted himself to learning and defending, who who initially thought these Christians are tearing down the law, he realizes, oh, Jesus didn't come to tear down the law. He didn't come to destroy the law. He came to fulfill it. It's all clicking in Saul's mind. And so now he's in the synagogues in Damascus. And he's not going to the synagogues and saying, hey guys, guess what? I'm going to tell you about a whole new concept called a Messiah. Now, he's going there to people who, had already, who were already very familiar with the concept of a Messiah. And he's saying, it's Jesus. Jesus is that Messiah. That's what Luke is wanting us to see. Jesus is that son of God. All of the scripture that we've been learning, it's pointing to Jesus. And so Luke records that, that everyone who heard Saul was amazed. He uses the word confounded. And I think there are two aspects to that. First, it's just amazing that Saul, who they had heard was on his way to ravage the church, do the same thing in Damascus as he had done in Jerusalem. And now here he is saying, Jesus is the son of God. That, that would have amazed people. But he's doing it in such a way because he now understands clearly what scripture is supposed to do, how it points to Jesus. He, he's doing it because he's not just because he's brilliant or well-studied, but because he's doing using scripture the way scripture is supposed to be used, pointing to Jesus, nobody can argue with him. And so the religious leaders of the day, uh, they didn't like what they saw. But when Luke says that that, Jesus, that Saul was proving Christ. He uses that word too. He's, he's preaching, son, he is the son of God, he is the anointed one, he is the Messiah and he's proving to them. I think it's really important that we understand he's not proving to them like in, in a historical way, kind of a 20th century apologetic kind of way. He's not using some sort of scientific method to prove that these miracles could happen. He's simply using scripture. That's so he's just using scripture saying, it points to Jesus, I've given Jesus my life. And so while, yes, Paul, Paul had some, some helpful uh, training before his conversion that would uniquely equip him to jump into these synagogues, that doesn't make him any less a model for us. Because if we we've, if we've know enough about Jesus to be compelled to give him our life, then we are ready to be able to tell other people that they should do the same. If we're compelled enough that we would submit to the reign of Jesus Christ in our own life, then we have everything that we need to begin to tell other people. Can we grow and get better in our understanding of scriptures and how to articulate the gospel? Yes, all of us can grow in those efforts. But if we have enough to place our faith in Jesus, then we have enough to go tell other people about Jesus. So that's the that's the first thing that's true of Saul and should be true of all of us. And there's a second thing that's true that actually helps us in our going and telling other people about Jesus. And that's we see this in verse 23, as a Christian, you must grow as a disciple. All of us, if we're Christians, we must grow as a disciple. And so you have this verse 23, the first five words, when many days had passed. Okay, that's really interesting in light of what we know uh, Paul said to the church in Galatia. He tells us that the many days that Luke had recorded, it was three years. So it, it was a longer period of time. This is Galatians 1.17. Nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles. He's saying, before he went, uh, apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem. So we have the very first few days, and then we have this, this three-year span that he's He was in Arabia. You know, we don't know exactly what he was doing in Arabia. There's a lot of speculation because he, he refers to the gospel that was given to me by revelation. The gospel that was given to me directly by Jesus. These are statements affirming his apostleship. And he could... Just be talking about Damascus, he could be. But there are a lot of people that think Jesus was actually teaching him during those three years in kind of the same way that he appeared to him on the road to Damascus. And there are people that speculate the three years feel significant because maybe that was the time that he missed out on. All the other apostles, they got three years with Jesus. Maybe this is Saul's three years with Jesus. We don't know, but we know that the way that he writes to the Galatians, he's communicating, I needed time to grow. I needed time to understand more about this faith. I needed time for Jesus to teach me. He needed, I, I mean, I have to imagine the idea of going back to Jerusalem would have been a difficult thought. Because he's going back and he's going to have to face people whose lives he destroyed. I mean, he, he, he ruined families. He, he killed people. Some families will never be made whole again. So I'm sure the idea of going back to Jerusalem, he needed some time with Jesus before he did that, but what wasn't happening, Paul wasn't remaining quiet about Jesus. This wasn't, I'm just going to sit in my isolation for, for some time until I'm ready to go out and be a Christian. We actually know that Paul was so evangelistic in his time in Arabia that the king was threatening to kill him. And that's why he's back in Damascus. <laughs> so he's still telling, about, telling people about Jesus, but there's this sense before I go to Jerusalem, I have to understand this faith better. He needed some time because of his unique calling to grow in his knowledge and understanding of Jesus Christ. So if that's true of Saul, how much more true is that going to be of all of us? And, and it could look different for different people because of our unique context, we always have seminary students and we were planted on a seminary campus for 30 years. We've had seminary students here and we're very thankful for that stewardship. And so for people who are called into a vocational ministry, especially pastoring, seminary is a great kind of three year time of preparation to grow in your understanding and knowledge of the faith. So that's, that's a good thing. But most of us are not called to vocational ministry, but we're still called to grow in our becoming Uh, disciples of Jesus. So, what are you doing to grow in your faith? I mean, the growth is the thing. Can we can we look back two years, three years, five years and see growth in our faith and, and see the things that God's been doing to make us more into his image? And and if you look back and it doesn't look a lot different, I'm not trying to shame anybody, but I'm pushing you toward a plan to grow in your faith. And so this, this could look a lot of different ways. I mean, the most basic is what's your reading Bible plan, your Bible reading plan. I mean, there, there are a lot of good plans online. A lot of us follow the Gospel Coalition's Bible reading plan. But any, almost pretty much any Bible reading plan out there is better than no Bible reading plan. And so what are we doing to get connected more to God's people and the church, things like community groups and formation groups and equipping ours is worship a priority for us. Discipleship looks different. Growing and becoming disciples is different for everybody, but it does, it does require a plan. It, it requires this knowledge that just in the same way that Saul... Had to grow in his understanding of being a disciple of Jesus. So must we. And you know, there are there are some converts that uh, just come out of the gate fast. Some zealous, usually young men. They're converted. They're in their young twenties. They want to go out and conquer the world, plant a church, pastor a church, start a new ministry. And often, God says to those people, the hardest word <laughs> that we could possibly hear: wait. I mean, he's telling Saul to wait in some way. And this is, and it's worth noting, he's wait for these these three years, but it would be 11 more years after that before he starts his missionary journeys. So there's a lot of waiting here for Paul. And this is coming from somebody that does not like to hear wait. You know, I, I, when I get an idea, I want it done yesterday. My wife says it is God's grace that when I came to faith, he put me in the other side of the earth for four years. That was needed for me but waiting can often be the most important thing we do to be able to grow as a disciple to be able to do a, 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 to be able to have a special unique vocational calling in our lives and the i think God's given us a little bit of proof of this recently if you look at the early 2000 church planting I could almost call it a craze, okay? like I'm I'm pro-church planting. That's why I hesitate on the word craze because it sounds like I'm against it. But in the early 2000s, you had all these 20-something Gen Xers who were inexperienced, no training, couldn't hear weight, going and planting churches, and not many of them ended well. I mean, if you think about any of the the Gen X early 20 church plants from the early 2000s, how many of them are, are going well now? In many cases, those that actually did take hold and grow, the church outgrew the discipleship of the pastor. And of course, the the quintessential uh, example that everybody's listening to on podcast is Mars Hill, on the rise and fall of Mars Hill. But, so, what does it look like for us? I wanna flip this around a little bit and ask us, how are we doing also at Helping other people to grow. What are we doing? Because in this passage, you know, Saul comes in both to Damascus and then we'll see in a minute Jerusalem, and they, everybody's scared of him. You know, they, this is Saul the terrorist, not the Apostle Paul. And it takes someone, in, in the first example is Ananias, going to him to help bring him into the community so that he can grow in his discipleship. So not only is there an emphasis on us taking the responsibility to come up with a plan that we might grow. There's also us taking the responsibility of others in our midst to bring them in and help them to grow. So Ananias took this terrorist and he brought him into the church. And, you know, probably the, the best way I can think to describe it is some sort of risky sacrificial hospitality. I think that's what you see the church practicing. Now, I'm not saying you need to go find a hitchhiker and bring him into your home. I did that in college one time and rightfully freaked all my roommates out. <laughs> and I don't think that the apo- that, that's um, I don't think the disciples here are bringing Saul around their children in these early days. I mean there's a wisdom here, but there is a risk they're bringing him in that he is in a home of sorts and they're talking with him because they're wanting to help him grow. So what does it look like for us I, it's it, Probably there's not gonna be the same type of risk as they're taking on with Saul here, but there's a different kind of risk. We're gonna risk when we do this in wasting our time, maybe, with people who who don't end up wanting to grow the way that we want them to grow. There might be a risk of rejection. We might be a loss of relationship. So there's still risk. It just looks a little bit different than than maybe we have here. And it certainly is gonna mean sacrifice because it's gonna mean that we take parts of our schedule, busy schedule, every one of us, and maybe maybe we look at our week schedule and we say, hey, this dinner or this lunch or this breakfast, I'm going to carve out to specifically be with people who want help uh, in their own growth in becoming disciples of Jesus Christ. And then, if we are growing in our relationship with Jesus and we're helping others grow in our relationship with Jesus... There's a third thing that's not so fun that should be true of all of us and we see this in verse 23 through 25 that as Christians we will be persecuted we will and i really struggle you know as a 21st century american pastor to stand up and talk to anybody about persecution because any of, if any of my brothers and sisters in the global east if they were to say jim what do you know about persecution my honest answer is compared to you, nothing. <laughs> okay, I get it. You have a whole nother level of persecution. But Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy three twelve, and he says, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So we need to wade through a little bit about what that looks like in our context. And so first I'm gonna go to Paul and then I'll circle back to us. So three years have passed. Saul's back in Damascus. We don't know how long he's been back in Damascus. He's teaching the risen Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the son of God. And he is such a threat to the Jews that they come up with a plot to kill him which is really important to note because they don't just kill every single person who teaches something different than, than the Pharisee leadership. There were lots of people who were teaching other things. You always have crazy people in your midst who were teaching things contrary to scripture. They have Romans in their midst who were absolutely living lives and teaching things contrary to scripture. You had a, a, a myriad of Greek pagan gods in the mix. They're not looking to kill all those people, but they want to kill Paul, Saul in this context, Saul, They want to kill him because what he's doing is a unique threat to their message. He is uniquely going and explaining their scriptures in a way that's pointing to Jesus. And people in mass are saying, I agree with Saul. He's he's taking their power away. Some would have felt he's taking their culture away. And all they know to do, because they can't convince him from scripture because he's, he's winning that debate. All they can do is come up with a plot to kill him. But their plan becomes known again. Uh, known for the first time, excuse me. And it's really interesting. Do you know that, that? So there's a group of people who go tell Paul, Saul, Saul, sorry. They go and tell Saul there's a plot against you, and they help him to find a hole in the city wall, and they lower him down in the basket. Do you know who that group of people was? It says Saul's disciples. So he already has disciples. He's already doing these things. He's growing in his walk with Jesus, helping other people to grow, and, uh, grow in their walk. He's telling people about Jesus, and because of all that, he is being persecuted. All right, so how, how do I address persecution in our context and look any kind of Chinese Christian in the face uh, or Afghanistan or North Korean or whatever? Um, I want to define persecution well, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work with a unique definition because I want to admit that we are losing Christian privileges in this country. And I want to say that is a thing to lament. It is. We're losing the privilege of having a culture that that encourages our worldview. We're losing the privilege of having our worldview taught in our public schools. We're. I think it's probably, I would put my money that within my tenure here at Orlando Grace Church, the church loses the privilege of being tax exempt. And when that happens, people say overnight half the churches in America will close. I don't know if that's true or not, but it sounds like a big deal. But... When, if and when that happens, we're losing Christian privileges. I think we have to call that something slightly different than persecution. Losing Christian privilege. Again, this is something to lament. It will not, it will not be good, but it's not the same as persecution. So the way that I'm defining persecution is this. It's persistent, cruel treatment that comes from our walking with Jesus and teaching others about him. So persistent, cruel treatment that comes from our walking with Jesus and teaching others about him. I have a friend who says that if we, call something if we call something persecution and Chinese Christians roll their eyes at it, we may need to redefine what we're saying about what we're calling persecution. And what this is where I want to be careful because I don't want people to read what I'm not saying. I, I am saying persecution is not losing the cultural battle. Okay, there is a cultural battle, and I want to fight that battle. I want to vote to 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 have a a society that honors Jesus. I, I really do, but it's a battle that unless we have a great revival on in the near future, and and maybe Jesus does, I I do want to say, I think it's a battle that we're losing and we're going to lose. And we're not losing it because faithful men and women, brothers and sisters, aren't doing their best to articulate a biblical worldview to the culture. We're losing it because the majority of our culture is no longer Christian. And so what's happening is we're entering into a more normative season as the church, where we don't have these privileges, where we don't have leadership in society. The majority culture does, and that's not us. But what I am saying is it's not all doom and gloom. Okay, If that's the season God has for the Western church, my, I feel like my duty as a pastor isn't to breed fear, but to prepare us for a future so that not only we're prepared our children are prepared our grandchildren are prepared for a very different culture than we and our parents and our grandparents grew up in and there are some blessings of persecution i mean i think this is this is how god has designed it when you have a darker culture you're able to be a, a brighter light i mean paul he didn't have a fruitful ministry in spite of the persecution he experienced most people would say he had a fruitful ministry because of all the persecution that he experienced in his ministry. So it's not all gloom and doom. When there is persecution in that moment, we we just need Jesus more. We need Jesus more in that moment. And our walk with Jesus is sweeter in that moment. He conforms us more into his image in that moment. The church is purified a little bit more in that moment. So there are opportunities. But what I am saying, and and we're going to we're going to develop like how you respond to persecution as we walk down Acts even more. What I want us to see simply is that it's a reality. It's a reality for Christians. Now, praise God in this season, persecution isn't probably going to look right now like it does in the Far East or here. But we're still going to be persecuted. Like there, there's still going to be losses. There's still going to be losses of relationship. There's still going to be losses of jobs. Uh, I think if anybody has my heart and my prayers in these days as public school teachers, I think they experience some sort of, uh, the, probably the most persecution of any of us. But what I want us to see is that it's normative. And if we're not experiencing any persecution of any kind for our faith, again, not looking to shame anybody, but we might need to have a conversation with Jesus if these other things are true as well. If this is supposed to be normative of the Christian experience, why is it not happening? Then, as we see this pattern play out, grow, tell, endure. Grow, tell, endure. What we see in the last part of our passage is that as Christians, this pattern will be on repeat until we die. That's the life of a Christian. Grow, tell, endure. Grow, tell, endure. And so we're gonna see this really briefly in this last part, verses 26 through 31. We see Paul's desire to grow. He wants to join the disciples. Verse 26, he decides it's time to go to Jerusalem. He is received unsurprisingly with some hesitancy. The last time they saw Saul, he was tearing them out of their homes, throwing them in jail, killing their friends. They're not looking at the apostle Paul. They're looking at the terrorist Saul. Saul. They don't know how to respond to him, but then we have the sweet Barnabas. So Barnabas plays a similar kind of role uh, in Jerusalem that Ananias plays uh, in, um, in Damascus. Barnabas has this spiritual gift of believing the best in other people. And he says, if it doesn't work out, we'll trust God with what happens, but I'm gonna choose to believe the best. And so he, like Ananias, he takes Saul in, he brings him to the other apostles, probably just Peter and James from what we know in the Paul's letter to the Galatians, and there is where Saul tells them, I've seen Jesus. I was converted on the road to Damascus. This is what I've been doing for three years, and Paul's deepest desire at this this moment is just to be connected to this group of believers, to be connected to the church leadership, and they didn't have this word back then, but the word we use now for this is church membership. He wanted to be a part of the church. That's a real part of how you grow. They didn't have that word because you don't need that word as much in a persecuted society because that creates a more pure form of church because nobody people tend to not join a persecuted group of people voluntarily unless they're really a true believer in what's going on so we see this desire to grow then secondly we see Paul is telling people about Jesus verse 28 he's now in the main synagogues teaching boldly Jesus is the son of God he's doing this in the name of the Lord he's arguing with the Hellenists so he's growing he's telling and then third verse 30 persecution comes again Again, Saul's disciples hear about this plan to kill him. Again, uh, they need to sneak him out of town, first to Caesarea, then ultimately to his uh, his hometown of Tarsus where he would reside maybe for another 10 or 11 years before he begins his missionary journeys that we'll be looking at as we walk through. But what I want us to see in the last verse of our passage is the result of this triad. What, what telling and growing and enduring what they produce. I'm going to tell you before I read the verse because I want you to see it clearly. They produce peace, strength, comfort, and growth. Peace, strength, comfort, and growth. Verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace. And I need to admit to you, the first time I read that, I was like, I just thought they're like... Saul's gone. <laughs> we can finally be at peace again. But that's not what's going on. This is an internal peace. This is a peace in their souls. We had peace and was being the church was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So when Christians grasp this triad, when we embrace telling people about Jesus, growing as disciples in Jesus, when we embrace that we are going to endure persecution and that's okay and God's going to use it, the result is that all of us are conformed more into the image of Jesus Christ. The result is that we are we're more fruitful in the ministry that he calls us to and we're going to have a sweeter relationship with Jesus because we're living in the ways that he has commanded and designed for us to live. So what I want is for this to be a kind of look in the mirror. All right? So when we look in the mirror, a number of things can happen. We, we might look in the mirror and, and like what we see. And, and that's good. Don't, you, you don't need to be ashamed if you're like, hey, I'm, I'm looking at these two things and I'm feeling like I'm feeling encouraged. Then be encouraged. That's good. For others, you're going to look in the mirror and you're not going to like what you see about you're growing, you're telling, you're enduring. And then there's two ways to respond. We can walk away and be discouraged or we can decide I want to see something different in the mirror. And so that's I think a challenge for all of us, me included. Are we satisfied with our telling and our growing and our enduring? Or do we need to come up with a better plan to be able to do this? Not because we have to, but because it glorifies and honors the God who has saved us. And it causes the body to be built up and it brings people into the kingdom. Let's pray. God, we are we're thankful for this look into the early days of Saul's ministry. We're thankful for this brother who has, humanly speaking, changed the entire course of world history. And might we look at his assimilation and assess our own. Whether we've been walking with you for one week or for decade upon decade. God, give us a heart to desire uh, to like what we see in the mirror. Give us a heart to desire to grow. Give us a heart to desire to tell. And give us hearts to joyfully and willingly uh, embrace persecution for your name's sake. We love you, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.